Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko here, Catch and Shoot Podcast. We talked to Todd McCulloch, who, you know, we both grew up in Philadelphia. You're now out in the West Coast. But I mean, I remember Todd from the 01 Sixers team and having to do battle against Shaq. And then he went to the Nets as a free agent and had to do battle with Shaq again in the finals. And then I remember him on the radio. But Adam, I'd never had any sort of conversation with Todd. And this is by far our longest interview. But when we but when we tell listeners every single minute is worth it, I mean it. Noah, it, it's weird. You talk to some people and you realize just how funny they are. But the thing about Todd is isn't just that. It's just how thoughtful he is. There's thought that goes into every one of his answers. That every question that we ask, and to to talk to a professional athlete that goes that in depth, not only just in trying to entertain and be humorous, but also on the serious side or just really put so much thought into every single answer. It means a lot because it opens a window into a world that we're not privy to. I mean, we went from pinball to airplane rides sitting in the bathroom to bouts with depression. And we started with asking him, how do you pronounce your last name? I pronounce it McCulloch. If you asked my wife, she would say McCullough. Uh, when my mother was alive, she said McCullough. My father says McCulloch and my brother says McCulloch. So I had to make a, I had to make a choice. I just assumed that it was McCulloch because that's what I heard my mom say. And then I heard my father say, this is Sandy McCulloch calling. And I, had, I was like, Mom, you say it. McCullough, it's softer. It's got an uh at the end. It's it's more pleasing. It's less harsh. But I think it's not a Loch Ness monster, right? It's a Loch Ness monster. So I asked my brother, you know, do you do the, you know, this this way, the Canadian way, or do you do it the the Scottish way? And my brother plays the bagpipes and um, you know wore a kilt and uh, and so he went McCulloch. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'm a McCulloch now. And my wife is like, eh, we were, you know, we were dating, and I think we were engaged at the time. She's like, I think I'm going to stay with McCulloch. It's softer. So now my kids have to make a decision if they're McCulloch or McCullough. Either, uh, either. And then when I got, I, I think when I was with the Sixers, I think they said McCullough. Uh, my friend Matt Core, the P announcer, did a, did a great job. And then I think when I got to the Nets, uh, I think the um, uh, Gary asked me how I wanted to pronounce it, and I, and I said I, I'd like it pronounced McCulloch, please, if I score, if I happen to score a basket. And um, and then uh, <clears throat> I think I, the game goes on, and I score a basket, and Todd McCullough, and I talked to him after. I was like, Gary, uh, I thought we talked about it. He's like, well, I, the NBA told me this is how it's to be pronounced. That's how it was. And I'm like, so I can't even tell you how to pronounce my name? Don't I even have control of that anymore? Think, Wait, uh, so, what, so what have your, your kids chosen? Well, I, I haven't asked them specifically, although I did check my son into a, a camp today, a little uh, a Nerf a Star Wars camp that I kind of wanted to stay and play because it's like right up my alley. Um, and they asked him, you know, his name, and he said, "I'm Dylan McCulloch." So, uh, so he's sort of taken that side of the family, the the Scottish, the Scottish side. Like I said, it's a Loch Ness monster, not a Loch Ness monster. Yeah, I think that's 
yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, I'm O-C-H. Uh, there are a lot of McCulloughs or McCullochs that are O-U-G-H, uh-huh. and I can kind of see the uh. If you're an O-U-G-H, I see that. But if you're an O-C-H, I think that's an uck. I think this is amazing because, Noah, as you, I know how particular you are about pronunciations as a play-by-play guy. How would you have handled this, Noah? I'm just curious. Just, just ask, the, ask the player. I think that's the right move, right? And then, and then sometimes you get, ah, whatever you want. And I say to the player, no, it's not whatever I want. It's your name. <laughs> whatever I will, I will call you Julie. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Whatever I want. You don't. You don't want me to call you whatever I want. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want that. Definitely don't want that. Uh, Todd, when uh, when we were doing research for for this interview, we came across so many interesting nuggets, and obviously we'll get to a bunch of them. But but one that I found incredibly fascinating was that you had said that your provincial championship in high school was the highlight of your career. Can you explain to me why that is? Yeah, I think that was just based on my reaction and my excitement. So I went to Shaftesbury High School in Winnipeg, and it was not known as an athletic school. I went to a kind of a a junior high school that was just, I was in a new neighborhood, and it was created, and it was a bunch of kids from my neighborhood that went to this brand new school, and we all loved basketball. My friends loved it more than I did at the time. I was athletic, tall, had played all sports and so my friends wanted to play basketball I'm like all right I guess that's what we're doing and I I I did well with coordination and height and and hands and and uh soft touch and all you know all those other amazing things about how great I was but anyway I'm just joking and so (laughs) we end up uh, getting having a pretty good junior high team and you know winning the conference and so now this high school has now a confluence a confluence of a new junior high feeder program and we um we ended up having a pretty good junior high team and now we sort of mix with some of those existing and now all of a sudden we have a contender and but we're going up against uh schools that were you know prominent and had won a bunch of championships and i just seemed like shaftesbury had never won any provincial championships in basketball and are we going to be able to do this and unfortunately we i was you know i ended up i was six feet at the start of ninth grade and then six six at the end of ninth grade so crazy growth spurt there where I was growing about an inch a month at school and I could only finally dunk as a when I got to six 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 but I get to high school and and uh, another little side note we're not allowed to dunk dunking is banned in the uh, St. James Assiniboia mm-hmm. conference uh, they they got tired of replacing broken backboards so dunking was illegal if you dunked it was a technical foul and we were blowing out some team and I decided to dunk anyway I missed the dunk and got a technical my coach is like what are you doing what are you doing you know you can't do that so I like non-conference games and other conferences because I could and it kind of gave me an excuse I wasn't a very explosive player and dunking wasn't something that I excelled at so it kind of gave me an excuse like I don't dunk because I'm not allowed to yeah that that's why but I did break a backboard one time though and maybe that's why they they didn't want people dunking so anyway um, I just we are good and we're winning and we have a I'm by this by my senior year I'm I'm this height I'm uh, 6'11 and a 13 16th like I am now I think I was 6'9 as a junior and I had a teammate that was 6'8 so in this city of six or seven hundred thousand people one high school that hasn't done anything basketball now has the tallest two players uh, in the province playing together as well as a really good support staff and are you know supporting players and we we're now we end up in the final against Daniel McIntyre and they had won the championship the year before they were dominant and I just didn't I mean I, I knew we had a chance but I just thought they're the best and uh, we end up winning 61-59. I had 50 in the final, so I think part of it was that I had a really good game. And it, 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 we're up by three with about 
three seconds left and we're going to win. And my stupid friend, Jeff Cron, fouled their best player shooting a three basically at the buzzer. And I wanted to strangle him. And unfortunately, he made one miss two. And all we had to do was inbound it. And so with me being six nine, they threw it up in the air. I grabbed it. And then the clock went off. And I just couldn't believe that the game was over, that we had won, that we were provincial championships. And it was an out-of-body experience that I had not, you know, had not happened in my sporting life. And as I went on to all, you know, I got lucky. We, I went to the NCAA tournament and I was lucky enough to go to the finals twice. And I got to play in the Olympics. And at no point did I ever feel that same feeling of elation where I feel like my felt my feet left the ground. I ran around crazy and it was just so surreal. And so I think that's why I made that comment is I was just, it was the most excitement I'd felt. And it was the most out of this world experience from a sports where I was just overtaken by emotion. And I couldn't quite recapture that. Um, although I'm, I'm very proud of all of the, uh, all of the teams that have been on all the things that we've accomplished. That one just, I, I, I was just on a natural high for quite a while after that championship. And then we went on to repeat as provincial championships the next year, but I'd, uh, you know, I'd put on a few dozen pounds and I think I had 13 in the final and I was more relieved that we, that we won and that, uh, I wasn't as good as a senior as I probably was as, as a junior. So I needed to get back in shape before, uh, before joining the Pac-10. Todd, I'm, I'm sure Noah has a follow-up about a bunch of that stuff, but is that the same friend, Jeff, who uh, was trying to win a radio contest by getting the most famous person to call in? <laughs> and Yes, yes, that is the same one. Hey, buddy, I need your help. What do you need your help with? Oh, I got this, uh, there's a radio promotion in Vancouver here, and the, and the goal is to have the most famous person call in, and if they determine it, we get tickets to a hockey game for the Olympics. And so he helped me, I'm like... Yeah, sure, buddy, but I'm not, you know, in Winnipeg in my hometown or maybe in Philly or maybe, you know, Vancouver. I don't even know if people – he's like, no, man, get Steve Nash to call in for me. I'm like, son of a friend, I disown you. I don't, you know. And he was like, what? He didn't even he didn't even hit him like why I would be offended, but I really wasn't. I thought it was actually pretty funny. <laughs> Have you is – there, is there a video of that provincial championship when you dropped – uh, I – I think I do. I think I probably do have it on VHS, and that was 1993. So if it hasn't just disintegrated, I do need to transfer all of that, all of those game films to, well, I guess DVDs are basically obsolete, so to some sort of uh, digital media. But I, I do, uh, I'm pretty sure I have that one on tape. I, I, I want to uh, know if you've, how often you bring that up to Jeff and if he, is, if he had seen that tape since. Um, I yeah, I bring it up every now and then. I mean, if if they if he had hit all three free throws and we have lost, I think we probably wouldn't be friends anymore. But I, yeah. I like to uh, rub in. I like to bug him that I also won the uh, juggling championship at our school. We had a school of jugglers. We had a teacher, Mr. Maters, who was awesome. And he's like, hey, guys, uh, we're going to have juggling club after school. If anybody wants to learn to juggle, um, we're going to teach the, anyone who's interested. And I'll have a whole bunch of levels. If you can complete this trick in this amount of time, then you'll get level one. So it, the school just kind of got bit by the juggling bug. And we were known as the school of jugglers. And then there was just, you know, I don't know, 50, 100 people that would stay after school and learn all these tricks. And then we thought we'd have a juggling competition. And so uh, Jeff was probably the best technical juggler. He had, you know, he could do, I don't know if he could do five, but he, he could, he was really, really good. He'd do juggling pins and, and things. And I was, uh, I was more of a performer. I was, I had, you know, pretty good skills, but I was a good performer. And so I came down to the final 
and the whole school judged, and uh, I could juggle basketballs because I have giant hands. And when I finally dropped, I went and did a layup. I think I actually missed the layup, um, <laughs> but I won on performance. And he thought it was BS that it was, you know, that people voted for me because I could juggle basketball. I'm like, I was just a better performer than you. Technically, you know, it's not all about that. It's about the judges. So, how many basketballs? Uh, three, three. And so I, you know, that's, that's tricky because they, they got to bump into each other and you got to be able to sort of palm it. So I, I haven't done that in a while, but I think juggling probably, it probably helped my hands in my ability to catch the basketball, which was something that I was sort of known for. And I think that probably didn't hurt that I spent a lot of time working on juggling tricks and uh, working on hand-eye coordination. Yeah, I'd imagine. That didn't hurt. What about being, so you said in ninth grade, you, you started as six foot and yeah. You ended up at six six at the end of ninth grade. So growing up, what and, and being taller and, and bigger than everybody else, what what was what was that like off the field of competition for you? How'd you handle that? Uh, it was. I, I'm from a tall family. My father is six six. He may have shrunk to six five now. Um, I, I have an older brother who's actually in the uh, Canadian Air Force. He's six six, so he's kind of pushing the limits of of uh, you know fitting into some of those. Uh, cockpits and military aircraft and my mother when she was alive was five foot eleven uh, my dog was about one foot two chainsaw yorkshire terrier once got his tongue stuck to a stop sign pole it was so cold i'm like you're trying to kill us both he's looking at me like hey, 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 hey. I'm like, he did the dumb and dumber he did the dumb and dumber yeah or the, or the christmas story and he got his tongue stuck to the pole and i'm like now we're both gonna freeze so i had to i had to yank his tongue oh. pole. True, true story and uh and then speaking of a christmas story I mean, well, I'll just jump ahead a little bit. I was doing radio with uh, uh, Tom McGinnis, who I absolutely love. He was, uh, the, yes. is, and was the, still is the play, play-by-play friend of our uh, podcast. And, right, and a guest, and a guest on our podcast. Yeah, he's uh, he's amazing. I miss him, and I miss working with him. And uh, one day we were we were playing the Houston Rockets. He and I were, you know, behind the desk back when we got to sit front row, which was, you know, a great way to watch NBA games and do radio. And Yao Ming ran by us, and he's a big man. And he's like, Todd, look at his legs. I'm like, yeah, Tom, those are some, those are some big legs right there. And he's like, yeah, look, look how big they are. I'm like, yeah, Tom, you've seen a Christmas story, right? And he goes, nope. And I'm just dumbfounded that anybody could say no to that question because it runs on TBS 24 hours a day every Christmas. And how could Tom say no? And so I'm just dead air. And you guys know dead air on radio is not good. So I got, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, you know how to respond to him saying no to that movie. And he's like, well, go, you know, go on. What's, what's your, what's your point? Like, why are you bringing that up? I'm like, well, Tom, in the movie, there's a leg lamp for Gile and if it was modeled after Yao Ming's leg it'd be like a giant leg lamp <laughs> and he's like all right can we get back to the game there's an NBA game going on here and I'm like I'm gonna get fired this is my first year away. I'm like what am I doing I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my job and uh and then my buddy texted me he's like dude I almost drove off the road because <laughs> I think everybody at home knew what I was talking about but uh, Tom just hadn't seen that movie at the time um so anyway I'll just I, I jump and digress and you know I advanced a few years there but but growing but growing up was it was oh, it, was, right. it dif- was it difficult on you emotionally ever? No, I had nice people around me that didn't make fun of me. Uh, tall family um, was always playing some sport, some season, so I was always coordinated. And I, I didn't I didn't really go through a gangly phase. I mean, I, I was stretching out quickly, but I kept my coordination. Uh, the kids were nice to me uh, for the most part. I was nice to them, and so people weren't giving me a hard time. I mean, I definitely stood out in the in the hallways, and uh, I think you just you only have your own perspective, and you don't really know what the optics are like on the other side. Um, I'm going to digress again, and I'm going to remember what the question was and actually come back. But I, but I kind of get it now. My, my roommate in college was Patrick Fermerling, 
teammate, seven foot from Germany. And one day, you know, it's, it's normal. If we're in this apartment with a bunch of basketball players around the court, you're used to height. But then in a normal situation, in the real world, um, we're on campus, University of Washington. And from across, across the quad, I just see this giant man, this seven footer, just towering over these five foot students. I'm like, I can't take my eyes off. I'm just staring at this this guy. And I'm like, that guy is so tall. I'm like, oh, I get it. This is what people do to me. So I kind of put my put it in perspective of, of, you know, people look at you a certain way, but people were nice and um, I stayed athletic and I, you know, I had, uh, I, I, I did well in sports and I think that helped my confidence. And so it wasn't, it wasn't tough. It was, uh, it was the, it was on the, you know, not the blotter, but the, just, the current status, like how taught is, the, hey guys, I, I grew another inch. I'm I'm six two today. Hey, great! And then two months later, hey guys, I'm six three. I got measured last night. Nice. So a friend of mine made me a T-shirt that said, "I'm six nine. Yes, I play basketball, and the weather's fine up here." So I've still got that uh, <laughs> got that T-shirt. It's a little it's a little outdated now, but it, it doesn't fit either. Nothing fits anymore. I, in fact, I have a jersey up at a local establishment here on Bainbridge and uh and a friend of mine went and they were there with their daughter and he's like, Hey Camden, this is uh that's that's your friend uh my friend Todd's jersey there and she's like, That's not his jersey. He can't fit in that <laughs> So that's really true. That's sadly true. And then you know, you sometimes well, you gotta prove who you are sometimes. I was at the the pool in Winnipeg and I think I was about this height. I think it was my senior year. So I'm this height. I don't have any ID on me, right? Because I'm in the swimming pool and this kid comes up to me, he's probably six maybe seven eight he's not that old and he goes hey man you're pretty tall i go yeah actually i i am uh, how tall are you i said i'm i'm seven feet tall and he's like that's nothing and I, i'm like what do you mean that's nothing i mean the next tallest guy in the province you know is my high school teammate who's six eight and i'm like what, what do you mean that's nothing he's like i know a guy who's seven four i'm like really who's seven four he said todd mcculloch I said, that's, that's me. I'm Todd McCulloch. He's like, no, you're not. The guy's seven four. You just told me you're seven feet. I'm like, no, I'm Todd McCulloch. And he's like, oh yeah. What number do you wear? I'm like, does he mean freshman year? I was forty three. Does he mean senior? I'm fifty. I'm number fifty. And he goes, nope, that's not his number. I go, yes, it is. That's my number. What are you talking about? He's like, I've been to the guy's house. It says sixty two right on the backboard. I said, that's my address. My dad painted it on the backboard when the backboard covered the numbers. And he's like, oh yeah. Who's your, uh, who's your driver's ed instructor? I said that her name was Mrs. McIsaac. He goes, yeah, that's my mom. She apparently exaggerated. I'm sorry. You have a nice day. <laughs> so sometimes you got to prove, you know, who you are. You get a little, you get a little confused. It's incredible. Sometimes. Uh, Todd, the only, the only height question that I had for you was that I read in an article about how you have spent entire flights in the airplane <laughs> bathroom. Oh man, you guys did do your homework. Um, I wouldn't well, say entire. I wouldn't say the entire. You can't start out there, right? You got to be in your seat. Otherwise, you're like, "Hey, where's Todd? We got to find him." Um, so you got to wait. Bing. Okay, now you can move around the cabin. But you know, you guys probably, you guys are probably the average height and average width. Mm, I'm, you, I'm, short, I'm shorter than average height. Okay, so you have lots of room on an airplane. Yeah. But is, oh, is yeah. it me or are the, or the seats getting tighter? Are they are they it, trying they to maximize profits tight. and? Oh my gosh, it's getting it's getting crazy, you know. But I don't want to I don't want to pay for first class, right? You know, it's free in the bathroom, right? So, I mean, you're all we're all going to the same place, and I can stick it out for a couple hours. So, um, going to this pinball tournament, which I do, and and I I stayed up late, and you know, telling pinball stories, and 
I'm exhausted by the time it's coming home, and I think I'll be smart and get a bulkhead seat and get a little extra leg room. Well, that helps you with the length, but if you're you know wide like I am, then you've got these fixed armrests. These are things you guys probably don't even think about. Um, the fixed armrest, because the tray can't come down from the seat in front of you because there isn't yep. one, so they're in the armrest. And so mm-hmm. those are fixed. They don't move. You can't move it up. You can't. I can't share the seat of the person next to me whether they want to or not. So I'm just wedged in there, and that causes paralysis, and it causes you know numb butt. And I can't feel, you know, the bottom half of my leg. So I can only sit there for, you know, an hour and a half before I completely lose feelings. So I'm like, you know what? The the crapper's got more room than this. This is ridiculous. So I learned this little trick. Go back there, put the seat down. It actually, you know, the circulation there is pretty good. I don't know if they're just bringing fresh air from outside in there, but they don't smell that bad. So I'm just sitting there. There's, you know, good hip room and decent leg room. But I'm like, look, this it's probably illegal for me to just sit in here and, and deny people of a real basic need, even though there's another bathroom over there. So what what's my solution? I'm going to leave the door open, unlocked, and ajar. It's just going to be not open. I'm going to leave it ajar and unlocked. So when someone opens it, I'm going to know. And so I'm sitting there and then, oh, no, you're not disturbing me. And I would get up and I would then they would do their business. And then and I would return to the seat. And then this would happen as long as I was conscious and I could recognize their need. But I guess on this pinball trip, I had stayed up too late and was sleepy. And I put my head in my hands and I, I must have conked out. And now the movie's over and the, the other line for the other bathroom is now probably 20 passengers long, including my pinball buddy who's at the back of the line. And he's like, no, not happening. Nope. You know what? I think I know what's going on. My stupid friend. I think he's asleep in that one. I'm not waiting this line. Wake him up. She's like, what? Wake him up. So I hear this, you know, panic knock at the door and I'm like, I wake up and I'm like, where am I? I've hit a new low at 30,000. So I peek my head out. And she's like, did you fall asleep? And I was like, I may have nodded off. She's like, I think you should go back to your seat. I said, I think I'm going to go back to my seat. Now she's like, that's a good idea. So I went back to my seat and then I couldn't use the facilities again. Um, I was on. A, so, you know, you gotta, you gotta, so my goal the next year was to not fall asleep. In uh, in the lavatory, and I, I succeeded in that one. And then uh, I was just on a flight with my wife here recently, and then the cart was, you know, we're flying coach again because that's how we roll. And the cart was blocking the lavatory for the, uh, the uh, not first first class passengers. And so I thought, you know, I think legally I can use first class if I'm impeded and I can't get to my one. I think I can use first class. And so I walk up there past all the first class passengers, and there's a couple flight attendants there in the their area talking. And I say, hey, I'm in the back there, but is it okay if I use this? They're like, sure, no problem. So I go in, and I think the bathrooms are getting smaller. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're getting smaller. So I, my shoulders hitting the roof, and I can't, I can't even figure out a way to turn my body or contort to, you know, use this this thing. So I'm trying to figure out how to do it, and bing, 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 bing. I'm hearing all these bings and boops, and I'm like, what? What? I, you know, normally they happen on an airplane, but this is happening pretty frequently. And all of a sudden, there's an urgent knock on the door. I'm like, what? And they're like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to go when you guys are banging on the door. Like, cause you hit the emergency button 50 times. Like every time I move my shoulder, I hit the help, help, help. And they're like, well, we figured you probably hit it, but then you hit it so many times. We thought you needed help. Like, I don't need help. I need you to leave me alone so I can go. So I didn't even go and ended up talking to them for the next hour. They were super nice. And and then I ended up actually going to the back. The cart had cleared by the end of that. And I could go to the well, Why don't you just get an exit, Rosie? Um, I do, I, I do that as much as I can when you're traveling. I mean, my kids are a little older now, uh, they're 11 and nine, but when they're little, you cannot sit in an exit row seat, uh, right, right. with, you know, if your family's on board, I think, you know, you have to like travel on a separate 
reservation because if your family's on board, they won't let you sit in exit row. And I, I think I don't know if the thinking is that you know you're going to be more concerned with going to get your family and not getting on the plane, and you're going to stop people. So uh, so we have to like you know pretend like we don't know. Just like hey, lady, uh, you have some nice children there. Why don't you go sit with them and I'll take the exit row. So I have to uh, sometimes have to book separate reservations so I can get an exit row. But now the kids are a little older, and uh, I can sit there and. Um, yeah, so it's good. I, I was on a flight somewhere, and it was a short flight. And uh, the other thing about exorosis that you may not know is you're not allowed to have a seatbelt extension. And, um, you you know, if you're anywhere else in the plane and your seatbelt won't fit because you have a, a tummy like I do, then you can request one. But if you're an exorosis and you request one, they say, I'm sorry, we're going to have to reseat you. You can't sit there. So um, so first thing I do when I get an exorosis is like, you know, have I been good? Have I been swimming? Have I been eating good this week? Is the seatbelt going to fit, right? And they're all different, different planes, different lengths. So I, I, like I click it, I'm like, good, I can sit here, right? But sometimes I don't really want to move, um, you know, so you just kind of try and like cover it with a pillow and make it look like it's connected, which isn't going to do well if the plane goes down. But I'm, you know, I'm sitting there and I try, I, I, this seatbelt will not fit. And I'm in the front row, I'm the front exit row, and I'm, I'm facing the flight attendant. And I can't get it to click. And I'm like, darn it, I got to fake it. I got to act like it's connected. I can't ask questions, you know, for a, for a free uh, a connector, a, a extension. And so it's a short flight. It's about an hour or so. And I'm talking to the flight attendant. She's very nice. And I think we have a good rapport going. And then all of a sudden, it's time to land. Bing! And, she, you know, she's sitting right in front of me in their jump seat. And she's looking at me. And she's like, can you just uh, do up your seatbelt? And I'm like, oh, yeah, right, yeah. I know for a fact this is not happening. I've already tried. And so I'm just like, eh, 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 eh. and I'm like, do you have an extension? She's like, her first thing it was like, oh, yes, I do. And then, then it comes, to, she puts it together. She's like, ah, wait a second. You've been lying to me this whole time. This is what I think that she's thinking, right? Like, if you need one now, you probably needed one when we took off. And your seatbelt hasn't been done up this whole time. And you weren't supposed to be sitting there. I'm like, these peanuts, they're really fattening. And I must have a lot on this. I don't know what happened. It fit on the way out. And I don't know, the, the chicken sandwich. And so I just, she she seemed so disappointed in me. I mean, she was, we were, I was being nice. She was nice. And then she just felt like I had been lying through this whole flight. And her opinion of me just changed. And I'm like, hey, she does this woman doesn't like me anymore. She feels like I've been lying about my seatbelt situation. How is your health, Dad? It's okay. It's okay. I know I drop a few. Um, I still, you know, I'm still battling uh, neuropathy, which is the, what, what caused the uh, my demise from the NBA. And so I'm still dealing with that. So that's, you know, it's nerve uh, irritation. I kind of feel like I'm wearing a shoe size, five sizes too small. Or feel just feet just feel... Um, compressed and irritated and I sometimes I felt like I'd walked a marathon just they just felt sore and and then parts of my feet would be numbness and I, I think I stepped on a pinball bulb one time I was in some flip-flops and I, I a pinball bulb from one of my games had fallen on the ground I popped it and stepped on it and uh, then I went to physiotherapy later and the physiotherapist said do you want me to remove this shard of glass that's in the bottom of your foot and I was like yeah you know I don't feel it but um, you know it's probably causing an infection so uh, so there's some there's some sort of some dead areas and then some other areas that are sort of you know burning and tingly and and so I've sort of been learning about how nerves can be you know some nerves that got completely damaged can be sort of severed in a sense where they don't have any that's where you get numbness and then other ones have been damaged and the signal has to really amp up or ramp up and that's when you get a lot of uh, you know sort of shooting pain so uh, you know discomfort and um, 
yeah, so I'm, I've, I'm trying all sorts of things to try and deal with the neuropathy and lessen it. But it, there have been some things that I've done that have uh, that have sort of lessened it and made it more made it more bearable. And so uh, so there has been some improvement on the you know as science improves and as it, it, you know neuropathy affects a lot of people. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of people with uh, with cancer and, and chemotherapy. That's one of the side effects can be neuropathy. And so it's affecting lots of people as well as uh, diabetic people. So there has been some research and some funding going towards uh, trying to lessen those things for for people. So I'm always trying to figure out, you know, how I can uh, get that a little little better. But you know, I'm able to. Uh, you know, try. I don't. I don't move very quickly, but I, I'm able to try and chase my kids around uh, a little bit. And so I don't. Uh, I don't jump and I don't run. Um, I try and walk brisk, briskly, and I, you know, I try and keep up with my uh, my active children as best. I, I wish that I could be able to do more um, with them, but I, I do the best I can with uh, with what my feet allow me to do. Are there good days and bad days, or every day is pretty much the same? Um, it's pretty much the same right now. So I kind of, it doesn't, you know, fortunately it doesn't keep me up at night and it doesn't wake me up in the morning. But then, you know, as soon as I, I, my feet are pretty, pretty sensitive. And so I, right on the side of my bed, I just keep my sandals and it's difficult for me to be uh, barefoot. And so I'll, I'll put my sandals on kind of from, uh, from morning until night. And until, until recently running shoes were quite uncomfortable. And I, you know, that used to be my, I don't know about you guys, but running shoes are what I wore. If I was in basketball court, it was basketball. Other than that, it was running shoes. They were the most comfortable thing I had. And then something changed when, when the neuropathy started, and they just seemed really compressing and really oppressive and uncomfortable. And just, you know, with some of the recent treatments I've been doing, kind of been able to put the running shoes on for a little while and maybe, you know, maybe go play nine holes of golf with a cart and, and be able to do some uh, do some activities um, in them, so that so that's been a positive change to just have you know the sensitivity be decreased a little bit, where that's not so bothersome, and and you know socks can be socks can feel very uncomfortable and they just kind of feel restrictive, and so I think the open toe sandals have been, you know, I, I there was you know it's all perspective, right? There's there's times when I you know I feel really bad for myself and getting my career cut short and then you look at it, the world and and some of the real terrible things that, that people have gone through and tragedies and and um you know people that don't have limbs and and one woman in particular i think i may have been espn that did a story on her and, and she had uh, i think it was it, the the layman's term was man on fire disease there was a more scientific term but basically her whole body just felt like it was on fire all the time and it was it was just terrible and so she, to overcome it she started running marathons and and it was uncomfortable for her to wear running shoes so she ran them in sort of sport sandals and they asked her like you know how can you run a, a marathon you sandals she's like i don't know that's just the most comfortable thing you know for me and so I, I think on one hand it put things in perspective you know this woman has this terrible pain all the time everywhere in her body um, but I could sort of relate from from the feet perspective, like I, it sort of made sense that, you know, I, for me, that's the most comfortable thing that I've found. And I've kind of been wearing sandals for the last 15 years. And um, so I have to just try and put things in perspective with, uh, you know, with all the terrible things that people are having to suffer through that uh, maybe sore feet isn't. Uh, I got to I gotta kind of keep things in perspective. Understandable, but it's 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 more than sore feet. So let, let's go back to when you had to retire. What was your your first day of retirement like uh it's bad um you know i'm not i try and be an upbeat person and uh didn't really understand depression and hadn't really gone through anything like that things have been going pretty well you know in my life up until that point so it was just a lot of confusion and 
couldn't understand what was wrong with my feed, and I, I feel like I used to look up in the stands and see 20,000 people there, and I just thought, you know, all of those people's feet are fine. Why can't I just have a, you know, a pair of their, their feet? So I was really, I just couldn't figure out. It wasn't a typical injury. It's not, you know, I don't know if any other NBA players have had to retire because of neuropathy. And uh, I think, you know, we're used to athletic injuries that have, you know, a cast or, you know, rehab is six months or an ACL. There's all this you know what what kind of injury you have and there's a track record and you know when you'll be back. And so for me, I was just trying to figure out like, well, how do I fix this thing? You know, what pill can I take? What surgery can I have? And when am I be back? And they just, you know, the doctors and neurologists, unfortunately just weren't able to give that kind of a timeline about, you know, this isn't something that we typically see athletically and we don't really know what to tell you about what the prognosis is going to be, how long it's going to last and when you can get back on the court. So it was, it was really sort of an unknown. And so I went, you know, I went through a difficult, uh, difficult period where I was just, uh, couldn't figure out, you know, why this was going on and, and how my career could be ending this way. And I was just really starting to get my confidence as an NBA player. And so we talked a little bit about my high school career and I was a confident high school player and I knew how important it was to that team. And then we get to the University of Washington and after a, you know, a couple years of transitioning, I redshirted my first year and kind of had a physical change, got stronger, got in shape, and then started to realize, you know, I, I am a good college player and this team depends on me and I know my value. And if I can play well, my, I'm going to give my team a chance to win. And then, you know, you end up in the NBA and I was just like, I don't, I don't belong here. I'm not as good as these guys. And I'm playing, uh, you know, against Charles Barkley and Akeem Olajuwon and Shaquille O'Neal and all these guys. And I don't, you know what, I'm just, you know, Todd from Winnipeg. And so I, it took me a little while to get my confidence. And I mean, I, I did have the skill set, but it, it's as much a mental game as it is a, a physical game. I had teammates that believed in me. I had coaches that believed in me. And I think inside, I think I knew I was a good player, but I just had to, I had to change my my thought process. I used to get into the games as a you know as a rookie, and I wouldn't play that often. I mean, I think of the fifth big man, I was either fourth or fifth in the lineup, and we had Tyrone Hill and Matt Geiger and Theo Ratliff and Nazi Muhammad and a lot of bigs that were playing ahead of me. So it was you know it was only in certain extreme situations where I would even get some court time, and then maybe the big guys ahead of me would get healthy again, and so then I would end up sitting on the bench for ten or fifteen games, and I would kind of forget what game action was like in the NBA. I think in, in high school, I played every game. In college, I played every game. And you, you, I think you get confidence knowing uh, you know, what to expect, and you get into a rhythm. And then now, if you're only playing you know, every 10th game or something, it was, it was hard for me to go in and, and execute. And so I would go into the games not trying to make a mistake. Like, I can't mess up. I got to guard my guy. I got to not make a mistake. And that was my, that was my thought process. And that was, that was wrong. And at some point I, I realized, or maybe somebody told me, you can't just, you know, go in and not make a mistake. You've got to go out and impact the game. You've got to get your opponent back on their heels and you've got to force the action and attack them and, you know, make them make mistakes. And so I had, I had the wrong approach and it took a few years until I kind of figured it out. And then next thing you know, I'm with the Nets as a starter and I'm starting to get my confidence. Jason Kidd is instilling in confidence in me, you know, the coaches, my teammates. And I, and I realized like, you know what, I can be a, an NBA, I can be a starter. And, I'm, and at first it's daunting. You know, it's one thing to be somewhere on that 12th to 15th man. Uh, and it's another thing to be a starter and think I'm going to be going up against Shaq one night and then Tim Duncan and Hakeem. And I'm thinking like, I, how can I be the starting center matching up against all these legends? And then you realize it's a team game and maybe, maybe you're outmatched at the center position, but you're going to get some, some help. And maybe there's some other things that you can bring to the table and it's not just a one-on-one -on -one matchup. And so 
Um, anyway, it took me, it t- so my, my point is that right about the time I was getting my confidence, feeling like I belong, I can play in this league, I'm a starter, I'm having success, that was the time when it all kind of fell apart and it just seemed, uh, it seemed <laughs> like, wait a second, this is, you know, I sh- I'm just figuring this out and I'm feeling like I belong and now this is, now this is happening, that was tough. How bad did it get? Um, you know, bad. I didn't feel like eating. I think there was probably a week where I didn't eat and I, you know, dropped to a, a weight that I hadn't been since I was a junior in high school. So I had no appetite and, you know, just didn't, uh, <clears throat> didn't have a lot of joy. You know, I had a hard time listening to the radio in the car cause I just, you know, just didn't feel like, uh, just wasn't happy. And, uh, so it took a while and fortunately the Sixers were nice enough to keep me on as a radio analyst and, uh, in that transition of working in radio for the next five years and, and getting ready for the next phase of my life and transitioning from being a player um, to still being within the organization that I, that I loved and being, um, a part of that family, I think was really key in you know, sort of bridging that gap before I moved on to the next phase of my life where, you know, this is just kind of the new, the new reality. And so, uh, that was a, that was a difficult time and it, it got easier over time. And I really started to enjoy, uh, doing the radio, but, you know, at first I didn't really want to be talking about the game and it was just difficult because I just wasn't in a good wasn't a good headspace but uh on the other on the other side a lot of guys talk about the court being kind of an oasis or a sanctuary you know whatever is going on outside you know the court was somewhere that was a safe zone where maybe they didn't have to think about or deal with some of those really challenging things and I think I actually found that as a you know a positive uh distraction a chance to you know shut off you know self you know, self pity and then uh, worrying about it, and actually just call the game, and uh, and ended up really enjoying my time doing that. And, and each year it got easier as it, as it looked like my career uh, wasn't I wasn't going to get back on the court, and um, and I wanted to try and be the best uh, best analyst I could be. I want to switch gears to but staying off the court. What was the celebration like after winning Game One O One in L.A.? Uh, that's that was amazing. Um, you know, we're not we're not cra- cracking champagne, of course, but I think we opened a lot of people's eyes. I think as a team, we believed we could we could win. We knew it would be tough. That was a, a very formidable Lakers team. They had proved it the previous year by winning the championship, and I think they'd even gotten stronger. They had not lost a playoff game. They won round one straight, round two straight, round three straight, and you know we were sort of hearing people theorize like this is going to be the first NBA team to win the championship without even losing a game. And they had a home court advantage, and then we go in there, and Allen goes for 43 in overtime, and just you know he's not listening to all that uh, all that talk, and uh, and so by by taking game one, I think it made people think like, okay, maybe this is going to be a series, and uh, and we're going to have another game in LA, and then we're going to go back to Philadelphia for three. Um, so if you know, obviously the home court is is important in uh, in sports, and so if if we could have taken care of business and and won a couple more, we wouldn't have had to go back to LA. But turns out that that Laker team was uh, they were they were you know if you you're not going to uh, sweep the playoffs and the opening rounds unless you have the ability to go into an opponent's uh, arena and get victory. So that was a um, it was a very it was an awesome game, and it, it gave us a lot of uh, hope and excitement. And unfortunately, we we weren't able to win any more games that series, and they and they swept us uh, the next the next four. But uh, so there was a lot of excitement in the locker room. But like I said, I think we we're all aware that it takes four, and that was uh, we we took care of our our job in game one. And, uh, and the Lakers played with a lot of uh, savvy, and they you know they recovered from that and made some adjustments, and then they were able to to, to finish us off in in the next four. Do you remember anything that 
that Allen said in the locker room after that game? I don't and, remember and anything. I'm, what's, what's that? You can curse too. It's fine. Uh, I um, no, I don't. I just remember the mood being really, really good. And I remember Allen Iverson stepping over Tyron Lue. You know, that's something that I remember about uh, about that game. And I think there was a lot of excitement for game two. And um, um, yeah, I, I don't remember anything specific. Just just guys. You know, we came here. I don't think any. You know, I don't know how many. Uh, Philadelphia obviously believed we could we could win. I don't know uh, if the rest of the country felt like we could make that a a series or or get a get a win. But um, unfortunately, there were some close games in that series, and I'm not sure that the the final tally of four one was indicative of of uh, some of those games were pretty pretty close. You went for thirteen and five in that game too, which is pretty cool against Jack, considering the way you talked about confidence earlier in the podcast, but. I'm curious just <clears throat> on that topic of confidence and, and, and on Allen Iverson, what's it like playing with Allen Iverson on, on a daily basis? So much fun. Um, the guy's incredible. Pound for pound, I think the best player ever, pound for pound, and uh, just has a an amazing desire and plays every game that it's, is last and sacrifices his body, and it just it – just, killed him to lose so he did everything in his power to will us to victory and he had the skill and the athletic ability and the toughness to do that a lot and so just being on the court with him was uh was a ton of fun and I, I think at one point somehow we were playing the Raptors and we get out on the break and it's it's Iverson and I on the break like two on oh I don't even know how that how that happened how I even got ahead of anybody and he was in a race to be the scoring leader I think he may have won the scoring title that year and every point counts and he could have laid it up and he for some reason he gave it to me and I slammed it down and I just I just remember you know some of those those moments of how much fun it was to be on the court with him because he just he played so hard and uh you'd never uh he would never quit so he was just he was just a ton of uh ton of fun to be around like a larger than life uh, personality that you just he had this you know this uh, he just his teammates wanted to be around him you know fans wanted to be around him and uh we we loved him in, in Philadelphia. It was a you know a huge reason why we why that team was so successful. I think everybody really understood their role. That uh, he was uh, I think he I think he dunked on me in practice one day. I think it was it was guarding for the pass, and he just went straight up and dunked it on me. He's like, "Come on, Todd, do you, don't you remember at Georgetown? I I could jump. You don't know I could do this." And I was like, "No, nah, I, I was pretty well aware that you could do that." It just <laughs> he dunked on me quite a quite a bit. Huh. Do you ever uh, do you ever go to Fridays with him after a game? I did. Yeah, I went to Fridays with him. Oh, well, I wasn't with him. I, you know, when I first got there, I was learning a lot, and it was like, "Have you met Alan?" I'm like, "No." He's like, "Yeah, he's he's awesome." I, I know. And and people get talking about Fridays, and I thought Fridays must be some nightclub or some some prop some popular <laughs> Philly club called Fridays. And then I find out it's you know TJ Fridays right there by you know Petecom on City Line Avenue, and that's yes. where he would hang out. And and I went there with my Winnipeg friends, and we were sitting in a different booth, you know, close to the bathroom. And so at some point, Alan got up from his group of friends and walked by my table to use the facilities. And we'd been teammates for I don't know a month or two, and you know, I loved the guy and had a, we had a good rapport. And and I'm like, hey, Alan, uh, I don't mean to bother you, uh, but can you? sign an autograph for my friends from Winnipeg here and they were like yeah sure man I'll you know sign sign an autograph for your friend I'll take a picture but he looks at me and he's like but who the hell are you and I'm like what he's like gotcha sucker I'm like that is not funny Alan you're making me look silly in front of my friends and he's like yeah I'm not sure 
but who are you? I go, what? Are you serious? He's like, come on, man. I'm just messing with you. Don't take it so seriously. So, you know, I think he, and I used to play around, you know, I think uh, he was there with his friends and I think I was there with my wife one night and we came out and he was making fun of big guys like, yeah, you, you big guys, you just lumber down the court and you, you do this and you, I'm just a big guy post up. And, and then I just, I think I did something like, Oh, you know, what should I do? What you do? And I just like fell, like I just hit the deck outside of TJ Friday's like go to the lane and pretend to get fouled and go to the free throw line and just, you know, just fell down on the ground. His friends thought that was kind of funny that I was imitating an Iverson drive, you know, drawing contact and getting some of those star calls. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, where were you when you got the call that the, Nets had offered you six years, $34 million. I was in England visiting my brother. My brother, like I said, is in the Air Force, and he was over stationed there, and I thought it would be a great chance to uh, to go visit him. And so I'm uh, I'm there, and we're negotiating, and I'm talking to my agents, and they're telling me what they're going to ask for, you know, the middle-level exception for six years. I'm like, don't do that. And they're like, what do you mean don't? I'm like, you. they, they are going to cut off negotiations. They're going to end it because you're being unreasonable. Can you just be reasonable? Because I just feel like they're going to just say, no, these, these, these guys are crazy. I don't want to deal with them. I'm like, can you just tread lightly? And like, look, we're really good agents. We know what we're doing. Let us do it. I'm like, okay, but just, can you just not push it too hard? Because if they don't want that number, that's fine. We can take less. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to end negotiation. They're like, just let us do it. I'm like, okay, please. And then they called me, and I don't know what time it was in England, and they were like, we we got it, or you got it, or we, you know, you, you got the mid-level exception, six years, thirty-four million. I was like, it was dead. Like I hadn't, I couldn't speak. I, I was, it was like the phone died, and they're like, hello, hello. I'm like, uh, uh, I had, and they're like, are you there? I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm here. And then my brother walked in, and he's like, hey, is it is it going well? And I was like, just hold on hold on. And then, uh, you know, I ended it with, I was like, you guys are the best agents ever. Thank you so much. Like you earned this, you know, you know, you did, you did your thing. I'm like, no, thank you. And then I hang up the phone and my brother and the, and my brother comes in. He's like, Hey, is it all right? And I was like, it's stupid. It is. He's like, that's okay, man. You're going to catch on with the team. Someone's going to want it. I'm like, no. I go, it's stupid what they want to pay me or what they've agreed. It's stupid. And he's like, that's good. Right. I'm like, yeah, it's really good. Couldn't sleep that night. Stayed awake. Big smile on my face. Went out for some Went out for some uh, Indian food that didn't sit well with me, but I was like, oh, "This is, you know, it's kind of crazy." I mean, I just, I think that there was a time there where where teams were paying on on potential and sh- you know guys show promise, and I think it was a big man summer where there was a need for big man, and I played well in the finals, and I think I think you, if you had a chance to get somebody that you thought was going to you know help your team, then then that was sort of the going rate. So there was a lot of. You know, there's a lot of questions from people. I think uh, uh, Ramsey, I think on the, uh, I don't know if it was ESPN.com or where it was, it was like most questionable signings of the summer. You know, number one, Todd McCulloch. You know, why would you give somebody like that all that money? And I'm like, I, I totally agree. You know, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm right there with you. I mean, what have I done? But, uh, you know, it, it, I, I think one of the things, I mean, I'm, I want to do, it's, it's crazy, right? The money's crazy. It's crazy now. It was crazy then. And you just, I just wanted to do well for the people that hired me. I wanted to do a good job for them. I wanted them to feel like I did the job they brought me there to do. And uh, I feel like in my year-end meeting with uh, Byron Scott with the Nets, uh, you know, they brought me in as a starter and they'd give me that contract. And at the end of that year, we'd had a successful year. 
and we went to the finals and, and he sat me down and said, you know, I just want to let you know that you, 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 you exceeded our expectations. We knew you were good and, uh, and you have exceeded the expectations we had for you. And I just thought, okay, well, thank you so much. That means a lot to me that you guys brought me here to do a job and all of us are making crazy salaries. But if I have uh, done the job that you hired me to do, and this is the going rate and I, if I've exceeded that, um, then I'm, you know, I felt like that's what I could control. And, uh, so I always, I always wanted to try and, you know, make the bosses happy and make the team happy. And, and it, it gave me some, uh, you know, uh, it made me feel good that they had brought me in to help, you know, to play that center position and, and, um, and help the Nets get to one of the two finals that they've gone to as a franchise. Well, you were definitely worth it. You averaged 10 and six that year and Dwight Powell just averaged 10 and five and just got three years, 33 million. So, um, I think you were underpaid for that for that time in uh, in in New Jersey when you when you played with with Jason Kidd, uh, the the passing exploits you always hear about, but actually receiving passes from Jason Kidd, the, it, how different is it from any other point guard that that you played with? Um, I was it was amazing and I was fortunate that I've had a chance to play with Steve Nash on the Canadian national team. Uh, I think, I don't know if I, I, I can't remember the first time I played with Steve Nash, but it was a real treat. Like as a big man to play with someone that is that good, that sees the court, they're doing like 95% of the work for you. And they put you in a position to score. And with the lookaways, your defender isn't expecting it. And if you, you know, you play with somebody like that and you're always ready to catch it. And I think you're a little bit ahead of your defender. And then they basically just put you in a position to be super successful and they get the, you get the jump on your defender and you just got to finish it. And so when I, you know, I didn't just randomly start negotiating with the Nets. Uh, they had made a trade for uh, Stefan Marbury to get Jason Kidd. And so I, I knew that the Nets were interested in me. I also knew that they were going to be a different team than they were the previous year, you know, having Jason Kidd running the show there as well as some of the other moves they'd made. Kerry Kittles was coming back from injury. And so that's, you know, my, the agents, my agents and I were seriously really looking at that, at that franchise. And I remember uh, calling Steve and saying, Hey man, I'm thinking about joining with the Nets, you know, or maybe I had signed and said, what's it going to be like playing with Jason Kidd? And he's like, imagine playing with a way better version of me. And I was like, you know, he's being humble, Steve, but I was like, I would love to play with someone, you know, Steve thinks that, uh, you know, playing with a way better version of himself. I'm like, if that's what it's like, then I'm sign me up. And so just playing with him was so much fun. These are, these are guys that they want to get you the ball. They want to win. And, and they've found a way to do that. And if they have to score, they can. And JK was super clutch for us. And, and Nash could score uh, at a whim. And obviously later winning two MVPs, he would, you got to be able to do more than pass. And he did it all. Um, but I, I think there was, I don't know if it was a playoff game or a regular season game. I think it was a playoff game and Jason Kidd before the game was like, Hey guys, we're going to win tonight and we're going to do it without me scoring. So you guys be ready. I'm, I'm going to pass extra tonight and we're going to win and I'm not going to get a point. How's that? I'm like, that, that works for me. <laughs> so to have someone that's actively looking to distribute the basketball was pretty incredible. And, and so I, I, I took a lot of pride in my ability to catch the ball. And I think the first day of training camp, um, I was, you know, I thought I was ready and Jason fired a no look pass that bounced off my hands and went out of bounds. And I knew it was one I could have caught and I don't know why I dropped it. And one of my teammates that maybe didn't know me or was like, Hey man, that's Jason Kidd, man. You got to be ready. I'm, and I'm, I'm, I, what can, can I drop one pass? I was ready. I will be ready. And I, you know, I, I don't think I dropped too many, uh, after that. And, um, and it was just, it was amazing to just 
be ready because uh, if he if he was looking at you uh, or wasn't looking at you, you had to uh, you had to be ready for him because he was trying to find you and, and make you put you in a position to be uh, successful. And so I always uh, I always wanted to keep the hands ready because he. You know, he was so good with his right hand, so good with his left hand. We used to do a drill where the, the strength conditioning coach would say, all right, we're running up and down the court. Put the ball in your strong hand. All right, and this time put it in your weak hand. And when he said put it in your weak hand, Jason Kidd would just run behind the ball, not touching it, refusing to acknowledge that he had a weak hand. And he would just run without his hands on the ball. I'm like, that's pretty cool. That Jason's like, yep, I don't have a weak hand, coach. You might as well call it left because it's not weak. <laughs> I, 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 read a, I read a quote that at the time Jay Kidd said that you were by far the best center I ever played with. Yeah, I thought that was a joke when the reporter, I didn't believe them. I think I laughed and I'm like, what, who's messing with me? I just couldn't believe it. And that, you know, that gets back to that confidence we were talking about. And that was, uh, that was the first game I was with the Nets and we were playing the Wizards. And it was when Jordan had decided to come back uh, to the NBA. And I was, I missed him. Um, I missed the year that I came in the NBA, Jordan had retired for the second time, and I thought oh, I missed my chance. He's not coming back again. And uh, and then a couple of years later, when I'm with the Nets, he's a wizard, and I get to play against him, and it's his first game as a wizard. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I can't even take my pregame nap. I'm so excited. I'm going to be on the court with Michael Jordan. And, and the PR director gave me the microphone. We were playing in Green Greenville, South Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina, and it was not an NBA city. And I assumed Jordan had never played there before. So I get the mic to address the crowd before the game. I'm like, hey, guys, I just want to, uh, you know, thank you for coming out here tonight and supporting NBA basketball. And uh, we got two very good teams that are going to do battle tonight. And one very special player who I believe is making their first appearance, you know, here in Greenville, you know, insinuating that. And then I go on to say a few more things. I'm like, hey, this is my first time in town. You've got a beautiful city. I hope you enjoy the game. And basically saying I am the special player that you guys have all come to see tonight. I hope you enjoy my performance. And I hope that got across. And I kind of heard the crowd laugh a little bit. And then we go to jump center circle, and Jordan walks over and he's like, I like that. That was funny. I'm like, I can't believe you talked to me. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm already having a good – Jordan's just complimented me on my weird humor. And I play great for me. I'm like, I'm feeling like I'm doing the dream shake, and I'm hitting fadeaways on the baseline, and I'm super excited. And I have, you know, my best uh, NBA game probably. And, and I think it was after that game where, where a reporter said, hey, Jason Kidd just said you're the best center he's ever played with. And I'm like, what? Are you who who has he played with? What do you what? what? So anyway, it was just it, I think he was serious, and it kind of blew me away, and it gave me a lot of confidence. And I, you know, I think that first example was me just being so excited to be out there on the court and wanted to prove my worth. And I think we played uh, Boston in the first regular season game, and and as a starter, I wanted to help. And I think we were up two with ten seconds left. I got two free throws to clinch it. I'm like, you know, this is you know, I need to I got a chance to help us seal this game, and I made both free throws and. We ended up winning, and uh, and uh, I had a friend in the stands, Bowen Karens, who's a, a pinball world champion. He was he was heckling me. He was yelling at me to miss those free throws, and we became friends. And I said, hey, I don't heckle you, buddy. I don't come to your office and yell at you when you're writing math textbooks, so don't yell at me in my job. But uh, it, all, it all worked out. And, and at some point, we're going to get the pinball, and, and I know we've kept it you know, much longer than our producer Bruce Bernstein probably told you we we're going to keep you. But the, the first time you saw Jordan then on the court during the regular season – he had 45, 10, 7, three steals on 50% shooting from the floor. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was, he was pretty, uh, pretty incredible. So he still, he's clearly still had it. And if anyone had any, uh, anyone had any question, uh, he sort of put that, uh, put that to rest 
um, um, yeah, he was, um, I, I don't know. He, he, he certainly had a lot left in, uh, in the tank and, um, it was just, it was fun to be out there on the, on the court with him. And I think, I don't know if it was that game. I think I, I blocked him, which kind of blew my, uh, blew my mind a little bit. He went up for kind of a Jordan S shot and, and I, and then he, I think he went down to try and kind of do an up and under, and I ended up getting my getting my hand on uh, on the ball and blocking it. I'm freaking out that I've just blocked Jordan. It's a clean block, and the rest haven't called a foul. And then Jason Kidd ends up with the ball, and I'm, I outrun my defender because I'm so excited that I just blocked Jordan, and Jason Kidd gave it to me as a trailer running down the court. And I felt like I took off from the free throw line. And I didn't, and I I just like spread eagled, and I felt like I jumped three feet in the air, and I probably jumped six inches, and did a spread eagle from six inches above the ground, and then dunked it on the other end because I was just so amped up from from having blocked Jordan. So I remember that sequence, but he definitely uh, Jordan lit us up uh, for that one. And later, I think we played them with the Nets, and we were up thirty at halftime. I think we hit seventeen of our first eighteen shots, and uh, one of the, the the missing shot we had was Jordan blocking one of my shots, which I was you know. Jordan have a block here and here and there. I, your other your your uh, your Nets teammate from from that time, Richard Jefferson. I reached out to him to see if he had any uh, any topics that I should ask you about. He said pinballs, which of course we're going to get to. He said that you chose the number eleven because it was a guard's number, so it might make you look fast. <laughs> and yeah, he, that didn't work. And and he said <laughs> to ask you about your old DVD collection from China. So I'm going to go with that one. What, uh, um, what about your old DVD collection from China? Yeah, uh, we just, I did a, uh, with the player association, we did a clinic over in uh, Beijing and Shanghai and I found uh, pirated and some bootlegged, uh, uh, DVDs that were af- affordable. So I thought it was a good chance to, you know, pick up my, uh, build up my movie collection, not knowing they were, you know, filled with a camcorder and people walking and hearing popcorn and the quality was not too great. So I had a whole collection of, uh, So where are you ranked right now in the the world pinball rankings? Um, way down there. I haven't looked recently. Last time I checked, I was either two thousand or three thousandth. I have a hard time with thousandth. Um, I think. But, but, you, up, but you were up. You were up at eighty four in two thousand. I think eighty four, eighty five is the highest I've I've ever been. And uh, we hosted the world championships here. Uh, my wife and I hosted the world championships in two thousand and twelve here on Bainbridge Island. We had sixty four players from. 12 countries around the world come and compete in my garage and game room and basement and all that stuff. And at that time I was ranked 104th. I think you had to be about 115th or better to make that tournament. And I, I made that one and got my butt kicked. So I've, I've been steadily declining. I haven't been playing in as many tournaments and at the tournaments that I have gone to, I have not been playing well. And, and some of those uh, clutch situations in basketball, when I've been able to respond when my team needed me, um, apparently I realized that's a team game and I think it was maybe my teammates that were responding, um, for me. Cause I, you know, in pinball, it's just kind of you and I have not necessarily stepped up to the plate and I get a little nervous and hands get a little sweaty. And I, you know, for some reason start freaking out over a $50 prize tournament that cost me like $20 to park. And then one of the other, <laughs> I won, they're like, Hey, you won 
thirty bucks, but you have to use some of that money to engrave the trophy. So find you know a decent engraver <laughs> that's not crappy, and then the less, less you spend, the more you save. But don't make it look bad. Like don't find a real cheap engraver. Um, so it's a, you know a little different, uh, little different uh, you know dollar signs in, in pinball, but it's still uh, it's still a ton of fun. And so I'm I'm learning how to deal with the pinball pressure. It's just a different different muscle memory, different um, you know. In basketball, if you're on the court, you're uh, you're on the court. And in pinball, half the time you're watching, and you're so you can let that get in your head. If your opponent is kicking butt and really crushing the machine, you can let that affect you, or you can try and you know tune that out and play your own game and and just go against the machine. So it's it's really a different game. And I, I thought my experience of playing high level basketball in front of twenty thousand people and playing in pressure situations would really help me. And I thought I would have an advantage in these competitive situations. And unfortunately, it's a completely different game. And I've had to sort of relearn some of those uh, techniques of just um, you know hitting your hitting your shot and and having the mental uh, part of the game happen. But I'm, I've really been enjoying the process. But like I said, I'm slipping in the rankings. But the 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 charts have been growing. I think we're up to you know fifty or sixty thousand people around the world from forty, fifty countries that are playing, and it's really great to see that that growth. And um, so, um, uh, you know, I still got some skills, and uh, maybe I can uh, maybe I can surprise some people again. I won one big tournament in two thousand eleven, um, where I defeated the world's number one player, the world's number four player, the number eight player, the number twelve player. I think I was ranked two hundred thirty seventh at the time. So, uh, so it was kind of a bit of a Cinderella run. And I, now that I did it once, I know it can happen, but it uh, just hasn't happened since uh, since two thousand eleven. So I'm, I'm due for uh, due for another victory. Well, the number one ranked player in the world I, I saw is named Raymond Davidson, and he lives in Everett, Washington. Have you ever egged his house? Uh, no, I haven't. He's a really, really nice kid. I think he started playing in the Seattle Pinball League when he was like 14 or 15 or 16. He was young, and, you know, I just, you know, you, you can't really, it's like ping pong. You can't really judge people on how they look about whether they're good at pinball, right? You can't look at someone and go, oh, that guy's good at ping pong. Um, and so Raymond, I just, I, I misjudged him because he was young. And so I made it to, you know, there's probably 50 people at that meet. And I got down to the final two and it was me and Raymond. I'm like, I'm going to crush this kid. He's, he's little and young. And this, you know, this game was out long before he was born and he just took me to school and crushed me. I'm like, well, you know, that kid's actually pretty good. And then, then pretty soon he became the world's number one player. I'm like, yeah, that's, I guess it's okay if you lose to, to Raymond. So Seattle is a real hotbed. There's uh, lots of, um, Lots of talent here, and I think the World Championships a few years ago were maybe being played in Belgium or something, and it was a guy from Muckleteo, which is a Seattle suburb, versus a guy from Edmonds, which is another Seattle suburb. So it was the we just got some some killer talent here, and so you go to these world competitions, and some of the Seattle guys are right there at the top, and then you play in the Seattle Pinball League, and those same guys are here. Like, come on, man, we can't, no one can win anything if you guys are at the stuff, but we're all proud of them, and it's that kind of a community where we're we root for each other and uh we you you want to see people um excel and get better and so it's been pretty cool to see the scene develop and some of the some of the you know this this region of the northwest has been well represented on the on the world stage of pinball and so you learn so much from those guys and they're they're awesome and they help you with you know they help you with strategy and questions and really everyone mostly tries to build each other up and and it's about execution you can talk all the strategy you want and then it's it's up to the best player to go out there and do it but it's really it's a sense of you know, largely people sharing information and then just uh, just letting it all out, you know, leaving it all out there on the on the play field and seeing who gets it done and who executes the best. A lot of people can offer advice and strategy and uh, tips on on playing basketball, but you don't hear very often a tip on becoming a really good pinball player. So, if you were going to give one piece of advice to someone 
in terms of improving their pinball game, what would it be? Um, learning to dead bounce. Um, that's been something that's really helped me, and it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, right? When most people, I have a lot of people come over here, and I want to introduce them to the game, and everyone's familiar with the concept, and at some point they've played pinball, and they just think, well, there's a ball, and there's these flippers, and there's a drain, and then we want to keep the ball out of it for as long as possible. Keep it alive, keep it not dead, and then you start to realize there's a lot more strategy to that. There's an order, there is, you know, shoot this shot, and that leads to that, so you need to aim, and there's vectors, and it's, you know, a little bit like darts, and a little bit like billiards. And, uh, you know, doing those things in a particular order can really, you, you can play for a minute and have a huge score as opposed to someone who's kept the ball alive for 10 minutes and is just kind of having the ball go all over the place. So the, the trick is to get the energy out of the ball and get it trapped or cradled and then you can hit your shot. You know, imagine in billiards, if you, you line up the white ball and you can take all day, imagine if that white ball was moving around and you had to try and knock another ball into a hole with the white ball in motion, it's, it might happen probably not going to so you got to get the pinball cradled trapped in a position with flipper up and the best way to do that is to recognize the trajectory of the ball and if that ball is going to hit the center of the flipper you can resist the natural urge to oh man it's getting near the drain i got to clear it i got to get it away from here get away and uh, you just have to sit there and watch the pinball and if it's going anywhere near the middle of the flipper and you don't flip that thing does not go down the middle. It bounces off the rubber. Some of the energy gets taken away, and then maybe you can trap it on the other side. And so it takes, you know, it takes a lot of practice and takes this uh, retraining of your brain to think, you know what, this urgency, I'm feeling really, you know, a good good way to practice is to play one-handed. If you put one hand behind your back and you just keep one hand in the middle of the of the lockdown bar, and then you react and you move your your hand to the right or to the left, you inevitably can't get there in time, and you start to realize that that ball bounces around a lot more down in that lower part of the playfield than you would think, and it doesn't immediately go down the drain. And so uh, that's a great way. I, I learned that when I had a my first child, and I would want to play pinball, and I would you know hold <laughs> my daughter with uh, one arm, and I would play pinball with the other, and I think that actually helped my game. So I uh, learned a dead flip. Uh, pick up a DVD called uh, Pinball 101 that was made by uh, the world's, uh, you know, uh, Keith Elwin is, he's not ranked number one, but he's sort of the consensus, uh, uh, you know, one of the greatest players of all time. And he did a pretty cool video called Pinball 101. And uh, uh, you can pick that up and it makes pinball, you know, it's it's a kind of a dry thing, but it, the video does a good job of really breaking down some of the basics. And, and, um, and that, that would recommend that to people. What's your, what's your setup like at home? The full game room setup. Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty awesome. It's like Chuck E. Cheese without the pizza, and then we just just order the pizza. Um, pin uh, got a Slurpee machine from Seven Eleven because I'm I really like those. Uh, there's pinballs. There is a skee ball machine. There's an air hockey. There's a an antique bowling machine that's 18 feet long from the 1960s. There's four Sega Daytona sit down racing games. A couple sit down racing games there's a super checks bubble hockey uh there's tons of there's a horse racing game from like the fair where you roll a ball up and you, you talk smack with your friends there's yeah there's it's it's you guys got to come out will you, will, you, will you send us oh. will you send us a video will you do uh will you pan the room yeah, I can actually, I can actually do that. I just, uh, I just met a, a new friend. I was down in Bend, Oregon, and had a chance to go to his uh, retro arcade, which I just fell in love with. It's like '80s music, '80s decor, '80s games, a new pinball, and a high scoreboard. And I was able to get two of the high scores up there, and had a chance to meet him. And uh, and I said, hey, if you're ever in Seattle, can you, you know, I'd love to have you, you know, return the hospitality. You've been such a good host here. 
love your arcade, you know, come visit me. And he was like, yeah, I, I will. And then I sent him a couple of videos and he's like, I'm definitely coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm totally up for it. I'm totally up for a road trip. Hey, what's been the, uh, yeah. What, what has been, what's the, I'd say most aggressive trash talk that you faced in pinball and what was the most aggressive or outrageous trash talk you faced on the court in the NBA? Uh, not a lot of trash talking go, going on in pinball, which is nice. I mean, people are pretty, pretty considerate. I can't really think of too many trash talking instances in pinball. I, I am a horrible trash talker. I, uh, when I was getting my mouthpiece made for the nets, the, the woman is like, you know, she was sizing it and she was like, she, uh, do you want me to cut it short? I'm like, what, why would you cut it short? She's like, well, I just want to know how much you trash talk if you want to, if you need to be able to enunciate or whether you're not a talker. And I'm oh, like, wow. I'm going to kick your butt. So I, you know, she was asking <laughs> about that. And I'm, I tried trash talking. It didn't work for me. I was playing, uh, uh, Ben Davis was a really good player for the Arizona, uh, Wildcats. And I was, uh, he was fronting me and they, they threw it over the, over the top and we, he'd been, we'd been talking earlier and he, you know, I don't know, maybe I hadn't showered that day or something. We're posting up and he's like, you smell like a horse. And I'm like, Oh yeah, well, you play like a horse. And I was like, Hey, that could actually be construed as a compliment. He's like, shut up. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm like making fun of myself. And so I'm fronting him and the pass is perfect. And I catch it go, Hey, yeah, you like that. And then I blow the layup. I'm like, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> the trash talking is not working for this guy. Um, yeah. So I did tell, what's his name? Uh, he was a play for the Celtics and uh and he was playing for his national Dino Ra I think it was Dino Raja, I think. And, Hall of uh, Famer Dino Raja. Yeah, I think it was Dino Smoker. Raja and I, Dino I, you Raja. Know, I I had a little extra incentive to try and block him because he was an NBA player and I wanted to try and make a statement. I block I was like, Get that shit out of here and he looked at me like what you, I'm like, I don't even know why I said that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a lot of respect for you and I it was just super, super rude and uh I dunked on one guy on the in the uh, with the junior national team. I don't dunk on a lot of people, and I got him. And then I ran back down the court, going, "Oh no, oh no, oh no!" And my buddy still makes fun of me. He's like, "Hey, what's up? Oh no, oh no!" So, yeah, but, uh, I'm not a good trash talker, so I just have to. I've got to just keep it in check. Did uh, did, did KG, KG or Shaq say ever say anything to you that made you? Uh, Oh yeah, Shaq. Oh, yeah, I'll start with K, K, uh, Kevin Garnett. You mean KG or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he was growling at me like he he was making <laughs> animal noises, and I was really confused. Like I don't know if it was a psychology thing. Obviously, I have a ton of respect for him and his ability. I couldn't understand why he was making the. He's like, <laughs> and I'm like, this is freaking me out. And then it was an inbounds pass, and it was an important possession. He's like, there's no way you catch this ball. There's no there's no way there's no way you're getting this ball. I'm like, Hi, I'm gonna try and get it anyway. Way, Kevin and I went and I got it he was making animal noises it was kind of crazy um you know Shaq is awesome and uh we we lost one of those you know the, the Nets final games and and uh I'm in the tunnel it's a home building and he's um he's getting on the team bus as I as they pulled around my Porsche and I don't know why I had a Porsche I can only fit a portion of myself into it I was I had to be a contortionist to get into it but they you know the valet comes and leaves the door open right in front of me I'm about to get in it and Shaq is just he's just a cool cat man and he's like hey hey Todd what, what are you doing I'm like I'm a little starstruck I'm like I'm just gonna get in my car Shaq and drive I'm just gonna drive home he's like that's not your car man have the van valet made a mistake have him bring your car around it's not your car buddy and I'm like it's my car bye Shaq see you in two days and I just you know I just leave the scene in my car and then now we jump center circle of the next finals game and, and we're about to jump and Shaq looks at me he's like 
be careful. I'm like, be careful. Like, is he going to, is he going to hurt me? What does he mean? Be careful. And he follows up with, be careful driving home in that little car. I don't want to <laughs> hurt. I'm like, man, you're cool. <laughs> and then I, I, think, I don't, in the finals, I, I don't know if this is going to happen, but I hit a, I hit a sweeping hook and I, I did hit a nice one in the finals because I forgot he was guarding me and I, I've been a scorer my whole life and when I get the ball, I shoot the ball. I don't pass it. I had four assists my freshman year in college, five my sophomore year, 12 my junior and 24 my junior. I did not like to share the ball. I like to shoot it and that was just ingrained in me. So I get the ball, I forget Shaq's guarding me and I go into my you know two-step left-hand hook and I'm like halfway through it, I realize who I'm being guarded by. I'm like, what am I doing? It's too late. So somehow I got it, just missed his fingertips and it rolled in and I was like, oh, I was super impressed myself we run back down the court and Shaq's like hey man that was a nice shot I go I swear it won't happen again I forgot you were guarding <laughs> it won't happen again but thank you that's incredible Todd we we could talk to you forever and when we make that road trip have, up there which all right which you, you know you and I should. do you won't we will have a lot of fun I, I come and I kind of guarantee that or it's your money back and you don't need any quarters here so come out here we'll have a great time I love I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna fly out in the bathroom yeah, just for posterity's sake. I, Todd, we have we have one more question for you before I I head up to uh, to Bainbridge Island and have you sign my May two thousand and two Slam magazine cover. Um, oh, nice. I, oh, do you guys know that story? You probably, I don't know if you guys know that story. Go hit us with it. Okay, so so I'm, you know I, I'm on the cover of that magazine, right? Because you have it, and I'm actually there. Isn't that awesome? I'm on the cover of Slam magazine, right? So I'm just like, this is awesome. I'm on the cover of Slam. I don't, I don't, you know, we've talked about this confident. I'm like, I don't belong on the cover. This is great. And so, uh, so I am, I'm reading the next issue. I think when when people like they write in and there's editors' notes and responses. Huh. I think I'm reading the next issue of Slam, and in the fine print at the bottom, some reader writes, "Hey." How the hell did McCulloch end up on the cover of Slam magazine last month? And the editor's response, I swear to you, was, yeah, we're still trying to figure that one out ourselves. And I'm like, holy, holy crap, like it's justified. I'm not the only one that wonders what I'm doing on there. So, you know, I had I, I heard that maybe, I don't know if this is true, that maybe Slam was like, all right, we want uh, Carrie Kittles and Jason Kidd and Kenyon Martin and Keith Van Horn. And then they're like, whoa, wait, you can take four starters, not five? And I, I don't know that. You know, somebody told me that Jason Kidd is like, no, it's all of us or none of us. And they're like, all right, fine, let him in. So I don't know if that's true, but Jason Kidd was super cool. And I could see him doing it like, no, 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 we're not just going to leave out the little Canadian thing. Yeah, all cool. right, it's all of us. So that's I think cool. I think they wanted to leave me out, and I can totally understand why. That's tremendous. Well, oh, then there's another team. one in, in uh, ESPN, the magazine. That's another good one. I'm I'm in the airport. I think I'm going to on vacation or something, and I'm, I need a little reading material at my gate. So I pick up ESPN, the magazine, and it's not the cover, but I open it up, and then there's like, you know, a page of like an inset, and it's like a, a, a co smaller cover, a cover that, you know, it's just in an inset. And it's me during a media press photo where I'm holding two basketballs on outstretched arms with my seven foot wingspan. And it was like me on the cover. And uh, I was like, well, that's pretty awesome. I'm on, I'm not on the cover cover, but it's like a cover um, shot of it. And, and then I start reading the headlines and it was like, when hell freezes over, when this team wins a championship, when all these things, all these sports things that would never occur <laughs> is when I would be on the cover. And I'm like, Oh, this is bullshit. And then my buddy's like, Hey, I picked up do you see you're on the inside cover of ESPN the magazine? Go, Did you read the headlines? They're making fun of me, buddy. And he's like, No, I just thought it was a cool picture, man. I thought that was really cool. They put you on the cover. I'm like, Yeah, they were making fun of me. 
they're like, oh. this, this is not happening. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you want where I get my confidence issues. <laughs> well, Todd, this has been by far my favorite catch and shoot interview. Um, I'd probably speak for tell, Bruce We won't Bernstein. tell Tom McGinnis either. Yeah, we won't <laughs> tell Tom McGinnis for sure. Yeah. Um, but we, we do like to close it out because it is the, the catch and shoot podcast with a catch and shoot question. So game seven situation, your team's down by one. You need someone catch and shoot to win it for you. Your life on the line. The only issue is you can't choose Allen Iverson, but any other teammate, high school, college, NBA, Manitoba, whatever, uh, who you going with? Uh, let's go with Steve Nash. I love it. I love okay. it. Why? Why? I don't know. The guy's super clutch and he's super cool. I mean, as as good of an NBA, as good as a player as he is, and if you're a two-time MVP, you're really good. He's just a better guy. He's just a better teammate. So, love that guy. Well, love Todd, it. this is awesome. And uh, we, we appreciate all the time and we appreciate you going all the way back and, and talking about some difficult things and and uh, we, we hope you have uh, more good days than bad days and, and continued best health to you. All right. Thanks, guys. I look forward to, uh, you know, you guys coming out here and we'll have some fun and keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. Uh, we keep up the good work week and, um, you know, keep doing what you're doing. This is great that you're telling people stories and uh, you guys are really good at what you do. So thanks for the time. Well, thank Appreciate you. And, you. and also, also, we hope that uh, hope that your son has a uh, good first day at Star Wars camp. Yeah, it's his second day. He had a great first day. He was excited to go back. So uh, hopefully he's blasting some people with some Nerf blasters. <laughs> and hopefully he figures out what his last name is, too. Yeah, no, he's got it right. He, he, he got it right. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.